The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Our great God, you are the living God. And you hold all things together so we don't have to. We thank you that you will take us in the messiness of who we are. We thank you, Lord Jesus, as we have declared that it is finished, that there is nothing more that can be added to your work and nothing that can take anything away from it. Lord Jesus, you are king. You are the high priest. You are the glorious one. You are the one who is the very source of our life and our lives. So, Lord, open our hearts to see you. Open our hearts to embrace you. Oh, God, show us that you're a God that pursues us in in our mess and even through our mess. Oh, God, would you show us your face this morning because you're the only one that can give us the deep satisfaction, love, and acceptance for which we long. Lord, I pray for those in this room this morning that are struggling, struggling to believe. Maybe some have given up altogether. Lord, I pray that you'd meet them. May there be a glimmer of hope that might turn into a river of life flowing from your presence. God, come powerfully, not because of the one who preaches, but through the one who preaches. God, do your work. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. One of my spiritual heroes uh, is a man by the name of Scott Sauls. He is a preacher. He, he would worked as an assistant pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City under Tim Keller, but uh, for the last several years has been um, the lead pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville. And um, I, I really love Scott because he is one of the guys that he's written a lot of books, he's asked to do a lot of conferences, he has a lot of notoriety, but you don't get the sense that it's gone to his head. Uh, you feel as if he still has the humility that he's always had, um, and he's just a regular man, and he knows it. And this really rang true to me recently in a blog that he posted. The very first part of it uh, was haunting to me because I could have written it myself. He really articulated my struggle over the last several months and even years. Listen to what he writes. My most common prayer request these days is that God would give me consistent, uninterrupted sleep. Because in the middle of almost every night, I lay awake for several hours wrestling. I wrestle with preoccupation, with self-doubt, with the dissatisfaction of unmet expectations and unrealized goals and dreams, with pressure that I put on myself or that I fear others will put on me. With the burdens of the day behind me and the day ahead of me, and with the sense that my work is never going to be satisfactory or complete. In other words, I wrestle over the unique calling of leadership, which is both an unspeakable privilege and a burden that one must carry often alone. I can't tell you how I resonate with that, and I'm sure many in this room can as well. All of us are put in some type of leadership role, and all of us know what it's like to lie awake at night uh, judging yourself, giving in to those, those thoughts that you're not enough, 
that this person or that person is judging you, that you're not going to rise up to their expectations. You feel all the pressure and you own it. And instead of going to God, you go inward to yourself and all that self-hate and all that self-negativity. And I wonder if Peter was there. (laughs) As we look at Peter this morning, the last couple of weeks, I've been wondering, what was the inner life of Peter like? I mean, he was the man in so many respects. He, uh, he left his profession uh, of fishing to follow Jesus, just like that. Jesus said, follow me, and he gave it up, and he followed him. He was the first one to profess Christ publicly, to say, Jesus said, well, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter immediately said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then later, in, uh, at Pentecost, he was the first one to preach, and 3,000 people were converted and baptized. And yet, what do we remember about Peter? He denied Jesus three times. <laughs> not once, not twice, but three times. I can only guess that this failure, this public failure, accomplished what Jesus intended. Because we'll see it at the end of John. uh, Peter is back in his boat fishing, and he sees someone at the shore, and it's Jesus who is cooking fish. He has a fire going, and and he's cooking up some fish. And Peter realizes who it is, and you remember what he does. He jumps in the water and swims. He can't even wait for the boat to get there. And you can only imagine that Peter has been beating himself up. How could I have done that? How in the world could I have told Jesus, or how how in the world could I have denied Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times? What a fool I am. And then he sees Jesus, and he runs to him, swims to him, actually. It's curious to me that all four Gospels give an account of Peter's denials. And and I don't think the Gospel writers did it to shame Peter. I think they did it because they knew how much we would need this story, because they knew how much they would need this story. They knew that we would need to hear the message, namely, that Jesus uses our sin and our betrayal to draw us deeper into his love, not reject us. Jesus is like no other leader. Jesus is like no other Savior. He is the one who doesn't look at our sin and, 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 and tell us to get away, but he sees our sin and knows it better than we know it, and he draws closer. In fact, Jesus uses our failures to draw us deep into his love and use it for his glory and our good. And I think that's a message we all need to hear this morning, so let's dive in. The first thing that we can see is that sin exposes in us the object of our real and authentic trust. What Peter's sin did for him was show him himself. It opened his heart up so he could see something that he needed to see. And that's what sin does in our lives. I remember I had an aunt in Florida when I was a little boy. 
And we only visited her a couple of times. Don't know the story behind that too much. She and my mother were just not too close, I guess. But I remember one trip going down there, and, and I don't know where we were, but we, we were in a glass-bottom boat. Anybody been in a glass-bottom boat? All right, some of the old heads in here. I don't think they do that anymore. I don't know. Maybe there's some accident or something. Uh, but I hadn't seen a glass-bottom boat in forever. But uh, anyway, so we were in this glass-bottom boat, and in a glass-bottom boat, what you can't see with the naked eye without the glass, you can see with the glass. So you can see through the murkiness, and you can see the fish swimming around. You can see their habitat. So if you look down in the bottom of the boat, you can see what you can't see with the naked eye. And that's how God uses sin in our lives. He always wants us to see something. It's not to shame us. It's not that we might live in guilt. It's not that we might remain in, in, in this, this cycle of self-defeating and self-hateful thoughts. It's to show us something in us that will drive us deeper into his love. And that's what's going on with Peter. But he can't see it any other way. Jeremiah 17 says, The heart is deceitful above all things beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. And examine the mind. This is so true of Peter. He couldn't see his own pride. He couldn't see his own blind spot. But the Lord could see it and he was showing him. We, we can understand Peter's pride and we see it in John chapter 13. Where we read, Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now. But you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, listen to this, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay my life down for you. <laughs> and Jesus answered, I, I wish I could see Jesus' face when he speaks these words. Um, will you lay down your life for me? Really? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Before your alarm goes off in the morning, you're going to deny having anything to do with me. Unbelievable. Jesus was pointing out this blind spot. You see, to Peter, and I can so relate to this, Peter thought that he was so faithful to Jesus because he was willing to die for him. You can only imagine Peter kind of played it out in his mind. All these other bonehead disciples are going to leave, but not me. I can see it now. The, the moment of truth comes. I step forward. I stand up. The guards take me. They kill me as everyone else looks on with ad ad admiration. But what Peter didn't see and what he didn't predict was a moment that was private when no one else was watching but a servant girl. Aren't you one of his disciples? Nothing to feed his ego there, was it? Nothing to gain from it. He was out of control. I don't know the man. Not once, not twice, three times. Volunteering to die would feed Peter's ego. Identifying as a disciple of Jesus to his servant girl's question would lead him into the uncontrollable. 
You see, Peter was all about control, and so are we. What, what Jesus wants and how God uses our sin is to free us from the need to know the outcomes and to simply find joy in following him. It's to obey him joyfully. This is what faith is all about. Romans 1 says this, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God, this is how the gospel works, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. It's all by faith is what he's saying. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The enemy of faith is control. The enemy of faith is needing to know the outcome before it happens. Faith is trusting God for the outcome. Listen to Hebrews 11, 1 and 17 through 19. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Here's an example. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able, listen to this, able even to raise him from the dead from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Faith is even in the most, even when your circumstances are dictating that you do anything but trust God, faith is trusting God in that circumstance. Abraham, is, it's got to be, he had the knife above his son Isaac, and he had to been thinking, now wait a minute, this is the son of promise. What are you thinking, God? But I trust you. Friends, what is God calling you to do right now? And you're not doing it because you're not trusting God. You're not doing it because you don't believe that there's any way it can turn out right and good. What we're learning from this passage is that we need to trust God right now. Our hearts can so make us think that we're faithful when really it's not faith that we're exhibiting, but it's control. We're serving God, but we're really serving our ego. We're serving God, but we're really holding on to control. We wonder where God is, and he's saying, I'm on the other side of you giving up your control. We wonder why he's being so mean to us, why our lives are not working out, and he's saying, because I am calling you to something better. Your control is not going to lead you to life, but you're giving up control will. Because when you give up control of you, and you give up control of your life, and you give up control of your reputation, and you give up control of everything else, then you have me, and I'm all you need. But am I all you want? This is what God is constantly getting at. You want to know what God is up to in your life? He's up to getting more and more of your heart. That's all he wants. He's not, he doesn't need us to perform for him. He can get the rocks to cry out from him. He doesn't need me to preach for him. He needs me to give me to him because that's when Richard Reeves is most satisfied. 
What was this morning about? Breaking windows out of my car. What's that about? That's about God saying, that's nothing, but I'm everything. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? Secondly, sin is always an issue of identity. Peter is wrestling with his identity. I mean, he, he always, he, he has this identity that he's going to be the first. He's going to rush the hill. He's going to be the hero. He's going to be out front. He's going to do more for Jesus than anybody else. And it's like, it's like God is so faithful to Peter to continually teach him, no, no, no. I want to run for you. I want to run for you, Jesus. Sit down, Peter. I want to break through the wall for you, Jesus. Get back, Peter. It, 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 and what's crazy is Peter, even we get to the end of John, and we'll see that, you know, in the spring that, um, that Peter, you know, has this great, you know, experience. He meets Jesus, and, and Jesus says, you know, do you love me? Yes, I love you, Jesus. We'll feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Yes, I love you, Jesus. All right, feed my lambs. Do, do you love me? He asks him over and over, do you love me? And Peter's getting irritated. I said it once. I said it twice. What, how many times do you need to hear it? And then he, he restores him to ministry. And then he gets to Galatia. <laughs> and listen to this. Galatians 2, 11 through 14. Paul writes, But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Peter's at it again. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, holy cow, Peter is living a false gospel. I said to Cephas before them all publicly, every, it seems like everything that happens to Peter is public. If you, Peter, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter's a racist. Peter wanted so bad to save face, to look good in front of his Jewish friends. He was eating pork chops and barbecue with his Gentile friends until his Jewish friends came to town, and all of a sudden, he's eating kosher. I don't know these people. I, know, I, don't, I don't know this central barbecue thing. I don't know what you're talking about. That wasn't me. It's unbelievable, and yet it's very believable. All of our idolatry all of our sin is rooted in the deepest human need of being accepted and loved and basing our significance on that which we look to to give us acceptance and love. And for Peter, Jesus may have been his profession, his public profession, but the acceptance of others was his functional Savior. Let me say it again. Jesus' profession of Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, may have been his public profession. But, his, but the acceptance of others was his functional Savior. 
Peter was looking to the acceptance of his people to give him life. And he changed his colors. You see, this is where we live. We, we, we're either a chameleon changing our colors with whatever group or whoever, whatever group we're with, or we're a dragon. We don't need anybody, and we're just spitting fire. But the gospel is a third way. For the gospel, we're not a chameleon, but we love people. And we're not spitting fire, but we're gentle and kind to others. We know who we are because of Jesus. We have been set free by his love. We know that he lived under the law in our place. He was our performance. I can't, I can't get to God any more than I am uh, um, to God through, through Jesus and his obedience to the law. Because I am clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, the Father looks at me as a righteous son, even though I sin. And that's the power of the gospel. When both of those things are fresh to me, there's life. Jesus took my sin, became my sin, and atoned for it, paid for it through his own blood and his own broken body. And that's the gospel. But where does the gospel lead? At the end of Galatians, Paul tells us, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. Now you can do relationship. Now, Richard, you can act. If you find the guy who broke out your window, how are you going to act? Are you going to act like one of my children? Are you going to act like a child of the devil? See, that's what I've been freed for, too. I've been freed from needing retribution. Though my flesh wants it so bad. See, the gospel is the only system of faith that works. The gospel produces men and women of humility, love, and boldness by providing the perfect grounds of one's identity, and his name is Jesus. And that's what we see here. Number three, Jesus is the way to and the essence of acceptance and love. I had a radiator hose once. I'm sure many of y'all have a radiator hose uh, break, uh, spring leak. Have you ever had that? All the radiator fluid starts blowing on the engine block, and it looks like your engine's on fire. And you're like, whoa. I mean, you, you know, you pull over, you, you're freaking out, and you're like, what's going on? You know, and, and you don't open the hood. Uh, you know, let it, let it chill out. But it, it's, it's steam. It's not fire most of the time. And, and, and what you realize is that that radiator hose... Um, just couldn't handle the pressure anymore. So it found, found the weakest spot, and it sprung a leak. Peter couldn't handle the pressure, and he sprung a leak. And that's what happens to us so much. But guess what? Jesus is about to face more pressure. What, what Peter is facing is nothing. But what the King of Kings and the living Word of God is facing is beyond comprehension. And yet, as you see it in here, we're, we're beginning to see it right here as he stands before Annas, and Annas, you know, 
you know, says, well, tell us, you know, tell us about your teaching. And, and Jesus is like, well, ask my disciples. I didn't say anything in secret. Ask them. And a guard is like, you smart enough to Annas? Whap! Slaps Jesus across the face. Woo! He has no idea who he just slapped. Jesus could have obliterated him and everybody around. But Jesus has perfect self-control, perfect control over his reactions because he knows what he's about and he knows his mission. John 6, 38, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus is not about Jesus even under pressure. Jesus becomes more about Peter than he is about himself. Peter becomes more about Peter under pressure, and Jesus becomes more about Peter under pressure. It's such a beautiful, beautiful picture. You see, when facing judgment and the wrath of God, Jesus is still exhibiting control he is still on mission you remember what he said on the cross to those that had nailed him to the cross that were gambling for his clothes and so forth he said father forgive them for they know not what they do perfect control perfect control jesus was a hundred percent committed to doing his father's will at whatever cost to himself why and how because he is utterly convinced of the love of his father Listen to this, all throughout John, John 3.35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. John 5.20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. John 10.17. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. John 15.9. Just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. John 17, 24, this keeps going. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you've given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus is so convinced of the Father's love that he is utterly committed to doing the Father's will. Because when you are convinced of somebody's love, you are given in to their will. You trust them. You trust them. And that's where Jesus is. Jesus wants Peter to see that indeed the Father is for him even as a sinner. (laughs) He wants him to see that he is for him even when he's a sinner. Here's the point. When we blow it, When we feel like a failure, and maybe we are a failure, Jesus doesn't move away. He moves close. When when God sees what's really going on in your heart and mind, and you've lied, and you got everybody else fooled, God comes close. When you feel like the biggest fake on the planet and the biggest failure on the planet, if your parents only knew... If your spouse only knew, if your friends only knew, if your boss only knew, if your employees only knew, 
If your church only knew all the only narrative that you can create in your mind is everybody rejecting you. But what Jesus wants you to, the narrative he wants in your mind is Jesus coming, is Jesus is coming close to you. Friends, that's the kind of Jesus we have. That's the kind of Savior that we have. And this is why Jesus allows Peter, he, he tells him in John 13, you're going to deny me three times before your alarm goes off in the morning. Why didn't Jesus stop it from happening? Why didn't he say, somebody lock Peter up? Because we, you know, we can't let him sin. Jesus loves him enough to let him sin so he can learn something about himself, so he can look at Jesus and say, your love is better than life. Your love is the acceptance I need. Your eyes are, your, the pleasure in your eyes toward me is what I need. You are what I must live for, and everything else will let me down. But you and you alone are life. Dear friends, are you trying to do life without Jesus? He is the love that you're looking for. He is not a, he's not an ogre who's standing over here saying, clean up and come to me. He's saying, I see your dirt, and I'm coming to you. He is the love that you're looking for behind whatever sin you're pursuing. It may be your work. It may look so good to everybody else because you are a successful business person. But God knows you're using it to replace him. And he says, come to me. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Why? Because I am gentle. Jesus says this about himself. I am gentle and lowly of heart. When was the last time you saw gentleness and, low, and humility in the eyes of Jesus? That's what he wants you to see. And his arms are open to you this morning. Let me end with this quote. It's from Gentle and Lowly, the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers. Uh, Dane Ortland writes this. You don't need to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. <laughs> Your very burden is what qualifies you to come to Jesus. No payment is required. He says, I will give you rest. His rest is gift not transaction. Whether you are actively working hard to crowbar your life into smoothness or passively finding yourself weighed down by something outside of your control, Jesus Christ's desire that you find rest, that you come in out of the storm, outstrips even your own desire to come in out of the storm. Friends, Jesus is wanting you to experience the freedom of his love, the power of his acceptance, the beauty of possessing him by faith and walking by faith in life, trusting him when circumstances are so stacked up against you that you're an absolute fool to do so. Because that is the only thing that's going to set you free. And the only question here this morning is not the goodness and love of God, but are you willing to be set free? Are you willing to fall into his arms? Are you willing to say yes to Jesus? And I'm talking to the Christian and the non-Christian. I'm talking to the preacher and those hearing the sermon. Are we willing to say, Jesus, here I am, all of me? Are we going to keep holding back? Oh, there's goodness on the other side, friends. There's life on the other side. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus.
come to Jesus. I'm going to ask that some of our elders, community group leaders, uh, just be on the side to pray with you. If you want someone to pray with you this morning, if you have a burden that you just don't want, I, I just encourage you, don't walk out of here with that burden. Go to someone and let them pray for you. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you. Oh, I couldn't make something up so ridiculously incredible, ridiculously beautiful, ridiculously inviting. Uh, I wish I were that smart. You tell us in your word on every page, your arms are open. You are for your people. Lord God, I pray for the one who feels outside of you this morning. I pray, God, that you would open their hearts and that your love would flood in. I pray for the one who is barely limping in here this morning, that you would open their hearts and your love would flood in. I pray, God, for the one who's, who's been doubting you and questioning you and holding you off and holding you at bay. Oh, God, may it be like a dam that would burst this morning that your love might flow in. Lord Jesus, do your work by your spirit. Help us to believe your love, that we might dance in it, live in it, and live out of it. Make us new, oh God. Make us new this morning. Father, do your work. Amen, amen. Let's uh, reach out our hands for the benediction as we receive the blessing of God on his people through his servant. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you peace. Go in peace, friends.